Welcome to Tuesday Talkies, where we discuss what's going on in the world of music business. I'm Peter Schwing, and joining me today are my co-hosts, Sam Tall, Ayesha Adamo, Stephanie Carlin, and The Duke. If there's something you'd like to chime in about, make sure to leave us, leave us a note in the comments below. Today, we're going to discuss Chase Rice's not-so-socially-distanced concert, the need for streaming to move to user-centric payment models, Minnesota artists demand a Me Too moment, handling the mental voices that mess with your creative work, and how to stand out and charge your worth, even in the face of recession. So let's get to it. Over the weekend, Chase Rice held a concert in Tennessee, and now he's feeling the backlash. Brushy Mountain Group put on the show at the Brushy Mountain State Penitentiary for about 4,000 attendees, though they claim it was more like 1,000. Rice posted a video which showed a packed crowd and none wearing protective gear, simply writing, we back. Numerous people inside and outside the industry have called him out and even put his booking agency on notice. Yesterday, Rice responded in a video by not offering an apology, but instead saying, I understand there's a lot of varying opinions, a lot of different opinions on COVID-19, how it works with live music crowds. He added, my biggest thing, y'all, you guys are everything to me, so your safety is a huge, huge priority. He also added, people, please go by the rules, please go by the laws on this Friday's show coming up and those moving forward so we can get to regular shows enough. Sam, someone had to take the plunge and host a concert. What are your thoughts on this? Uh, too soon. It's just too soon. I mean, like, it, it's, it's one thing to, to say that somebody needed to take the plunge and host a concert, but that, I wasn't expecting that to happen for months. You know, I guess the, the drive-in concerts are one thing, um, and apparently that's what is, is up next for Chase Rice uh, is a drive-in concert. But again, talking about going by the laws and the rules, well, I mean, like, you look at all the places where the laws and the rules are being relaxed, and it, it doesn't make it better. So... I think this is an instance of action speaking louder than words and uh, generally kind of giving into the economic pressures, which I understand, but I find it to be really disrespectful to the uh, tour folks behind the scenes who uh, are canceling work, not taking work, refusing to participate because of the safety, because of their families, because of the people around them. And then this happens and, and it just kind of puts everybody at risk and makes things worse, makes the concert business on hiatus even longer. Well, there is the quote, though. So like Brian May, uh, the vice president of the Brushy Mountain Group, he was saying that, quote, all local requirements were abided by for the recent concert and numerous precautions were taken. Uh, you know, these kind of things are like. You know, it's like, oh, well, we followed the, what the law said. And it's like, it, there's, there's the other circumstance of saying, are people going to behave properly? And that's what you know, Brian May also, uh, also said, but then Chase doubled down and saying, it's like, please follow the law. So you're, you're asking people that obviously aren't, you're setting it up so that they can obviously do whatever they want and you hide under the fact of saying, well, we did what the guidelines recommended. Right, well, and there's, there's always the matter of enforcement too. So you can spend all you want on top of the soapbox crowing about the law as hollow as the law might or might not be, but if you don't opt to enforce it actively, nobody's gonna take it as seriously. It's like jaywalking in New York. It's against the law, sure 
but so what? Yeah, I mean, he also he said that we couldn't. It was tough for us to enforce. Well, if it's tough for you to enforce, then you shouldn't be putting it on in the first place. Well, it, I I agree, and I think you know that obviously leaves a huge gap. And there's a lot of artists who are looking at this and saying like, we're foregoing a bunch of money. We're foregoing the opportunity to tour. We're foregoing, you know, venues that are taking risks and we're not putting ourselves at risk, but we're also taking the risk financially. And so it's unfair to kind of, it's not a picket line. It's not a union issue, but it sort of feels like breaking a picket line a little bit. And it's disrespectful to everybody else who's taken the financial hit by not doing the same thing. Right. And he's going to continue going on tour and in the drive-ins, you know, and Go, this kind of brings on a different, it's opening up the Pandora's box in that sense of years ago when stre streaming services were saying, it's like, well, if you really, or people were saying like, oh, if you really want to make money, you don't rely on the streaming services, you go on tour, you use the streaming services for exposure, and then you go on tour. Well, obviously right now, there's no touring and the only revenue, any significant revenue is from streaming. And now we're truly seeing how little that you can make a living off of streaming for the majority of the artists. So if we can't tour, what do we have? Streaming. And I know offline you mentioned that about streaming, the need to move to a user-centric payment model. What what exactly do you mean by that? So it, it basically comes down to a dollar in, dollar out kind of question, right? So if I buy a record, uh, my money is spent on that record. The money I spent on that record turns into a royalty for the artist of that record. Whereas on streaming, that's not the case because you're paying a single usage fee, a subscription fee for the entire, you know, library of Alexandria of music, if you will. Um, it's 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 tough, I guess, in the initial concept to determine how to allocate the money that is accrued by the platform as a whole. But we have so much rich data and so much deep intel about the listening behaviors of particular users, as evidenced by Spotify wrapped at the end of every year and other kind of sort of campaigns that they've done to promote the platform. It doesn't make sense to me why we can't allocate specific users' play activity and the revenue associated with that play activity to the music being consumed. And so what the, the user-centric model basically outlines is if I spend, say, $10 a month uh, and Spotify keeps $3, it's, it's less than that, but we'll, for the sake of their uh, published numbers, we'll say it's their, their 30%. So there's $7 on the table for the rights owners. And if I only ever listen to your music, you get all of the money that I paid into the system because you took all of the activity that I put into the system as well. The existing paradigm is I put in my $7 into the pool for rights owners and it's then aggregated and then divided by the number of streams. So if you only get my 100 streams in a given month uh, and that's all of my activity and it's all of your activity, the money that I spent actually goes to everybody and then divided by your 100 streams instead of your 100 streams being worth my $7. So it the, the sort of analysis and theory that has gone into calculating what the impact of this would be basically suggests that it would uh, super boost independent music on the platform because the fans around independent music tend to be uh, dedicated and fervent around that uh, style of music. 
but the uh, consumption about pop music at the top 40 level is so broad in terms of its consumption that it wouldn't actually suffer that much of a difference. It might have a little bit of a dip because it's not, you know, it's not benefiting from royalties that don't uh, belong to them. But we're also talking about music that exists in the million plus streams per day range. It's clearly not going to suffer under this model. It's just going to kind of reorganize things in a bit of a more equitable way. Yeah, and there's two things on on that is one, you you know, I have my 10 fans. I'm a fan of super fan for 10 artists. And years ago, you'd go buy their albums and it goes to goes right to the well, not right to them, but it gets more direct. Or if you're talking about Bandcamp or something like uh, and then a -hmm. merch table, like a Bandcamp or a merch table situation, the money does go directly to the artist. And that's a really powerful driver of support. Mm -hmm. And and then the thing is, I want that kind of money to go to them. So in the model right now, it doesn't exist. And it's kind of that old radio model before they could get that data was like, you know, looking at playlists and the, you know, the DJs writing in, it's like, oh, I played Madonna's Like a Prayer 20 times today. And I played X person this many times and I played this song. And then they compile and the, and the PROs would say, oh, well, we estimate based on this this uh, segment that this is what we are going to pay out to the artist, but you hit you hit the nail on the head where it's we have so much data that we can identify so, like crazy details and why shouldn't it be that way? And one thing is, well, the labels have own stake in the streaming companies, so they're going to want to see that you know profit continue. And there's that one issue that. Are they going to bite the hand that feeds yet again? And I think, you know, it's certainly, it's a matter of um, political power. I think it's less and less a matter, especially with the sway of the public market, less and less a matter of the labels having equity, though that is a piece of the pie, piece of the puzzle here. Um, But I'd like to see some kind of real uh, enforcement or power at play to make things more equitable. Um, one thing that I noticed that I, that I heard recently was a statement from, I believe it's the shadow secretary for culture and arts and digital culture and arts in, in the uh, UK, um, was on the BBC talking about her support. Joe Stevens, the um, labor MP from Wales, one of them, I guess. Um, I'm not as well-versed in UK politics as, as US politics, and that's quite a, enough of a story for most of us, I think. Um, but the, the, the support is there, at least it's, it's starting to be there. And I think when you're talking about a premium market like the UK, one of the top five music markets in the world, and certainly one of the, the most valuable currencies in the world, especially with regard to streaming, um, British streams are, are quite valuable, especially at the premium level, that has real implications and real sort of driving power. And I hope that starts to trickle out because it could mean a much fairer music economy for everyone, especially as we kind of elongate this, um, pattern of not being able to play shows and festivals. Yeah, I know that there were people talking about this user-centric model five years ago and then some, and maybe with what you said in this current time, we it might come to more to the forefront. So let's keep talking about this and you know hopefully something you know might change it it's going to be it's a it's a big challenge so thanks again for that sam thank you um last week minnesota public radio posted an article titled artist demand me too moment in minnesota music the article starts by saying 
Several musicians in Minnesota are calling out what they say is a culture of sexual harassment and abuse in the Twin Cities music scene. In response to the public outcry, Rhyme Sayers Entertainment has ended its working relationship with two musical acts. The author of the article stated, researching the allegations, started researching the allegations last fall, and it seems like there's more to come. To talk more in depth about this, let's bring on the Duke. Here I am to talk more about it. Thank you for bringing me on. Um, the Me Too movement in music is um, something I guess we really haven't really jumped into yet, but it just seems inevitable because in any industry that you have um, gatekeepers, you have people of power. And as we all know, as adults, that uh, power corrupts. So um, with those gatekeepers, we've seen it with Harvey Weinstein and Jeffrey Epstein. But in the music industry, we haven't seen so much but um, it's just a, it's just inevitability. So it's good that we start the conversation. And I was um, just I was I would I I like to see that that it, it has at least started, even if it's all the way in uh, you know Minnesota. Well, I mean the music industry. I mean, there's definitely been the Me Too, uh, you know, over the last year or two that was definitely coming to the forefront. But in specific, I mean, in and it's been an issue like ongoing, and it's important that it is discuss and this awareness, but specifically to Minnesota. I mean, is it like Minnesota right now seems to be the hot spot for that's the, where the water has boiled over, everything's bubbled over and they're standing up and we should take their lead in that sense. I have no idea. I've only been to Minnesota twice. I played at the sixth Avenue. I think the name of the spot or whatever the, that uh, spot that Prince made famous in um, purple rain. And um, basically, it felt like Canada to me. So I really can't speak on the people really nice. I don't know why. Maybe they're just tired of being nice. Um, I don't know, really know the cosmic energies of uh, Minnesota. But I, I just feel like um, maybe Minnesota is the world. Um, you know, I always felt that Brooklyn was the world. But maybe Minnesota is the world. And what's starting there will just branch out to everywhere else. Um, I mean, Rhyme Sayers is, is, a, is a rad label. I always liked their energy. And um, that's a smaller label. So as that bubbles up, it's just, it's only a matter of time. I remember seeing um, Jordy White, who was, I think he was the bass player for Marilyn Manson when the Me Too movement started coming out after Rose McGowan. And some girl said that he raped her. Um, but I, I just have not seen it go. Well, well, I did see Russell Simmons, right? Some girl did come out uh, against Russell Simmons, but it hasn't gone so large yet, but it's only a matter of time. You can just feel it. And being, I've been in the music industry for 20 years. And when I first started, I saw so many beautiful girls get like destroyed by these powerful dudes that just promised them all types of things. And they would just, you know, just use them. And then these girls would just kind of look to their other people, like their, uh, you know, their vocal teacher or like their manager. And those guys, they would just do nothing because the people above them were so powerful. But now it seems that the people that were so powerful are becoming less powerful, which is really positive. And um, I think it's just a matter of time before you see whoever those label heads are. I don't know who they are but it's just going to start. It's going to be a little domino vibe coming. Right on. Yeah. And, and it's important to speak up because nowadays there, there's more support and there are people that are getting behind those who do speak up. So it's really important to address these type of topics and something that we should discuss more in future episodes and on the, on the website. So uh, thanks step for that Duke. Um, you know, taking over, going over to, uh, cancel culture and, and kind of ties in where, you know, if, if you're screwing up, 
you're, you're going to be canceled. So this is, you know, we're in a time of where cancel culture is abound and the critical voices in the artist's mind can be talking rather loudly. To discuss how important it is to continue to speak from your own place of truth is Ayesha Adamo. Hey, great to be here again. Um, thanks for the great intro, Peter. Yeah, so I mean, with cancel culture going on, I mean, it is a thing. Um, and there's a lot of censorship, not just out on the internet, but with our own inner voices. Um, so many times creatives censor themselves um, through those inner voices that they hear in their head saying, you know, I'm not good enough to do this, or, you know, these things don't turn out for me, or like this project is no good. All of those kind of inner critics. And that kind of gets compounded by hearing these other voices on the internet with their own version of censorship. I was talking to a healing client this past week about how she has several writing projects that she really wants to start, but she's afraid about the reception she's going to receive for them. And it's true, we're in a time when people are really quick to judge. Um, I can understand how she's feeling because pretty much everyone out there, no matter how large or small your platform is, you're probably experiencing some kind of trepidation of like, I need to be cautious. Um, cancel culture is something that I think is, while we need to call people out on things, it's wrong-minded to really cancel someone out completely and not give them the space to redeem themselves or, or, or do something different. And what's more, when our inner critics that were already talking away hear these outer critics saying things, even not to us, even just to other people on the internet, that makes their message even stronger and builds the resistance against putting out our creative work. And the truth is, I think most artists who are having this dilemma are probably very good with their discernment, probably have a very good, clear idea in their hearts of where right and wrong sits. Um, so if you've run your project through your heart filter and you know you're coming from truth, it's a real disservice to the world to not put what you have to offer out there, to be walking on eggshells when you could be sharing that with the world. So what I'd like to suggest is if you know you're in the space of the real deal with what you have to offer, one of the things you can do is just take a moment when you start to hear those inner voices and just maybe close your eyes and see in your mind your creative space and take those voices and put them into the image of a person, dress that person, and then escort them out of the room so that you can do your creative work. Every time that happens, I do something similar to this uh, process, and it really helps me to separate those voices from the voice that I want to put out there. Um, and that's basically what I just wanted to bring um, to the forefront, you know, because I know that there are a lot of artists working on this right now, and it would be a shame to lose their voices in the conversation. It would be a shame if they stopped themselves before they began their creative projects. I love that idea of, uh, you know, put, almost kind of using a surrogate and saying, get out, get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> you just have to be careful where it's like somebody walks in and you're yelling, get out of here. And they're like, wait, are you, you talking? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, no, you're okay. You're okay. You're the good energy. Um, yeah. You know, and the, and the one thing about the, the, the cancel culture is, you know, there's, it, it serves a purpose, but it's also, 
there's that fine line between canceling the wrong person and what they have to deal with and uh, and which is getting people a little nervous about speaking up and using their voice. So it, it's good to, you know, it, it kind of put yourself in check in that sense, but you still, you know, be authentic and be able to speak your mind. Yeah. All right. On. So thank you, Ayesha. Um, you know, moving on is the uh, music business has always consisted of the classic quote unquote starving artist mindset as if it's acceptable to undercharge while being overworked. To talk about how you can stand out and charge your worth even in the face of a recession is Stephanie Carlin. Thanks, Peter. So today I wanna to talk about what it actually means to charge your worth and why many artists do not do this. So whether you're an artist or an industry leader, whatever you are, you have an art to do. And that's what I'm talking about, your art. And your art is an expression of your soul, which is why at the core of who you are, no matter how you participate in this industry, you have strong beliefs about money. And it's not just about your work as a business or an entity, but it's about you, your value, or at least what you believe your value is. And the default question an artist asks is, what am I worth? But a smart artist asks, what is this art worth to the world? What is the value of this art's impact on people? And if you're spending weeks, months, years agonizing over your art, stuck in a holding pattern, not taking the actions with your art you truly wanna take, not producing the financial results you crave, then you wanna discern if that energy that's going towards creating an impact on this planet is truly about creating an impact or if underneath it's about trying to prove yourself. Because art is an expression of your soul. And I want to talk about the soul contracts you may have made with yourself. Now, stay with me. I'm not going to go too crazy into past lives, but we're going to dabble there a little. Uh, I want to see if this resonates. And I want to mention the three energies you could be holding onto as a soul contract. And maybe it's even from another time. You still with me? We can, we can do this. All right. First, I want to talk about how artists trade dollars for hours. And this is one inauthentic way to gauge your worth. And this comes from Think of like the energy of a tradesman. Historically, the tradesman would only have value or worth on their time trading hours for dollars. Number two, let's talk about artists who believe passionately in what they're selling, but don't feel inherently valued themselves. It's like the energy of a merchant historically. And I see this in artists who will like hustle, hustle, hustle 300 days a year on tour, but like still be deeply dissatisfied with their life while they're beloved by their fans. Um, still cannot live in a place of joy, satisfaction, peace of mind. They're always selling themselves as a business, but their own identity continues to feel worthless. So it's a mind warp. And the third are our healers. We see our healer artists doing things like donating 100% of their live stream revenue to charities while they themselves cannot afford to pay their bills. And these are the artists who are our healers. They are, there are subconscious oaths and vows to poverty in order to be serv in, of service to God, of service to their work. Or you might have beliefs that money corrupts and you can't do your best work if you're wealthy. Now, these are just three examples. There are many other energies that keep us from charging our worth. Being a, a woman is one example. Historically, women didn't work. A hundred years ago, if a, a woman had any societal, societal value, she had no money to herself. A woman was not allowed to be a healer or a merchant or a tradesman. A woman's worth was always based off of uh, what relationship can you have? Can you carry a child? Are you attractive? 
So I call them soul contracts or past life shit. But like, if you just look at the practicality of what I'm saying, they're beliefs. They're thoughts we keep thinking until they become real and they tether us to a false reality about our worth. So let's jump into the tactical side of creating your future in the face of this. My request to every artist listening today is to look at what you charge. No matter where you are, this, this post-COVID world has forced you to pivot. It's forced you to reevaluate. Now that touring's off the table, releases are postponed, whatever it is for you, please daydream with me and ask yourself, what is one thing you can charge three grand for? I mean, that's an arbitrary number, but that might scare you. And if you're in the industry and already charging 3K, 5K, 7K, my request is to daydream and double the number of your favorite package to sell. What beliefs immediately come up? Is, that, is it hard to charge that money in this industry? Uh, maybe no one will pay it, or maybe it's laughable that you'd even think you could charge that. Or maybe it's that you'd have to suffer to charge that money, or you have to work hard in order to deserve it and it's not allowed to be easy. I mean, money and sex are two of the most loaded topics a human being deals with. But the money you receive is simply a currency. Attention is a currency. Time is a currency. Goods and services are a currency. It's a current that flows between you and another as an energetic exchange. But what I ask of you today is to do the work to untether yourself from any indulgence in believing that you're undeserving. Your work is important. Your work has inherent and explicit value in the world. You are worthy of receiving great money for your art. You are worthy of being wealthy and genuinely abundant with your art. And please let nothing stand in the way between you doing this with your art. Thank you. I, I love that. Uh, and there's a couple points. And talking about your value and, and what you were saying is, it's not like what is this song or this piece of art worth to me? What is it worth to the world? You know, you, you, if you think in that mindset for a moment of those large companies that are valued at billions of dollars, and those companies, why are they valued? And, and you see they're not making money. You know, it's like they lost money this quarter and they lost 800 million this quarter. So like, how are they valued at $50 billion? Part of that is that valuation is what is the value they bring to the world? So if we talk about a streaming service such as Spotify, it's like, yes, are they losing money or are they, their net is very low? But are they providing a value to the world? And that answer is yes. So you're looking at that value to the world. And the second part, uh, you know, and you, you talk about the tradesmen, it's like, you know, there's that, that saying is like, Somebody went in, it's like a uh, plumber went in, it's like it fixed and fixed it, you know, tapped the machine, said, oh, fix it in 10 minutes. And the guy says to him, it's like, oh, I'll pay you for the 10 minutes. He goes, no, it took me 10 years to learn how to fix that in 10 minutes. You owe me for my experience, not for my time. Well said. This is the, um, my greatest hope for all artists is to break out of that time for dollars mentality and step into like really owning your value and your expertise. And that goes for anybody in business. And that's it for today. Thank you all for tuning in. If you want to chat with our hosts, stick around for the after show conversation. And if you find this interesting, please hit that subscribe button and ring the notification bell to be alerted about new shows. You can also find us at musicindustrycity.com and on your preferred podcast player. Thank you again to our hosts, Sam, Aisha, Stephanie, and the Duke. Have a wonderful day and see you next time. Peace.